you're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hi, David. Hello, Will. And hello to our listeners once again, and welcome to episode 11. 11. Yeah, it, we, this is in June, so it's not 7-11, which is cool for Slurpees and is when cool people are born. I've heard, I, I've heard that there are some cool people who are born around that time. <laughs> Today's episode is about Antarctic paleontology. Yeah. And of course, we'll get into that after our news section, but I wanted to go ahead and say that this was a requested episode by one of our listeners. Yes, it was. Our second episode by request. Yes. And so this was by Andrew on Facebook, who messaged us with a request for this episode and some of the things he was you know, particularly interested in hearing about. And we'll definitely get to hit on a number of those for this episode. But yeah. thank you, Andrew, for the suggestion. Thanks very much. And once again, at, for everyone out there, if you ever have an episode idea that you'd love us to talk about or that you feel has not been talked about enough in general, we, talking's what we do, and we will gladly talk about it for you. Absolutely. We we already have a list building up of requested episodes. Uh, as we've said in the past, we will get to all of them eventually. Mm -hmm. We're working our way through, so keep them coming. It's starting to almost equal the episode idea list that just the two of us have created. Like It's, it's, it's certainly getting there. It's starting to get to where they're going to be comparable in size and not too long if this rate continues. So, awesome. But yes, we have a, oh, yeah. a number to go through. Before we get into things, uh, news and episode topic, real quick, a couple of announcements. As a reminder for everybody, we are not only all over social media, we're also on Stitcher now, which is kind of cool. And as we announced last time, we are on Patreon. We already have a few patrons, which is super exciting. That's amazing. Very exciting for us. Hopefully very exciting for you. Keep them coming. If you want to join us on Patreon, we're happy to have you. The other announcement, in case you somehow missed it, just earlier th this week, uh, which is a few days ago now, but this will be coming out in a little bit, we released another But We Digress episode based Woo! on another cool new bit of news that had been hitting the headlines. So if you want to hear about T-Rex skin, scales, and feathers... Check out our second But We Digress. Yeah, fun little mini episodes. And now the news. And now the news. And so my first one is another one that I've seen popping up a number of times. So many of you probably already glimpsed it or seen it. A recent find of a baby bird that was preserved in amber in a yeah. really good specimen of a baby yes. bird. So this was uh, from the Journal of Gondwana Research. Mm-hmm. And it was a hatchling bird, about 99 million years old, preserved in amber. It's from a group of birds known as the Enantiornites. Beautiful. And it was preserved, most, or about half of the bird was preserved really well in the amber. Yeah. And when I say half, this includes the wings, which is not the first time we've seen wings. Yeah, the wing. Uh... Lots of the skin, lots of feathers, a clawed foot, and its head. Yes. So we've got, like, quite literally half a bird, and we have at least one of all the important parts. <laughs> so yeah. we can learn this, a lot about it. 
this bird is about from head to tail about six centimeters long. Yeah, the the sample of amber was only three inches long. Yeah, okay. So I mean, it was very small. They do have the feather colors, which as you as anyone who's been listening this long knows, I'm always excited when we get to learn colors of stuff. Absolutely. Being ironic since I'm colorblind, but hey, yeah. that's aside. This bird's feathers ranged from white to brown to dark gray. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're typically, you know, you're typical just kind of brownish, grayish, you know, bird colors is what it's, you know. And I like that a lot of that stuff kind of stands that we're not getting these crazy like, well, why are all the birds back then purple? You know, it's yeah. they all <laughs> look like standard bird colors. Yeah, which is kind of neat. They nicknamed it uh, Biloni uh, or Biloni, whichever way they would pronunciate it. It's a Burmese name for a oriental skylark that is similar color to the amber. Yeah. And I just like that backstory. That's a that's a neat little backstory for its name. So this this fossil is cool for a lot of the reasons. Uh, uh, David actually wrote an article about it, so he also I knows did. some of those cool reasons. But one of my favorite things is that this group of birds, one of the, thing, the, one of the features that is pretty consistent among them is that they were toothed. Mm-hmm. And that they had claws on the digits of their wings. Yes, which is which is something that's not absent in all modern birds. Yeah, it's it's present a lot more than people think. Exactly, especially uh, there's lots of juvenile birds that'll have it and then lose them to help them get around before they have feathers. Uh, this was just one where it was very consistent, mm-hmm. and it's something that a lot of people don't realize was, you know, is and was more common with birds. Yeah, and also just sounds really cool. Um, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I quite enjoy that aspect of it. But you had mentioned one thing about the um, the different feathers that had been discovered that was really neat. Yeah, the the one of the cool things about this specimen is that it that the tight the, the the variety of feathers on the body is really interesting because it provides insights not only into what this group of birds was like upon hatching. Uh, this is a group of birds. This, this, this is a sister group to modern birds. These aren't ancestors of modern birds. They're cousins. But it also provides some interesting evolutionary context. Because one of the combinations of feathers that they have that's strange is that their bodies aren't very feathery, which is something that we see in a lot of modern baby birds today, especially yeah. the ones that are cared for by their parents. But its wings had fight flight feathers on them. Yeah. These were baby birds that were basically born just about ready to fly. Mm-hmm. The other type of feather that they had were these weird bristly feathers mm-hmm. that modern birds, we don't typically see these, but we do see them a lot on dinosaur, non, non-bird dinosaurs with these sort of early stages in the evolution yeah, of feathers. the filamentous feathers that you always hear about. Yeah, so just like these birds had retained teeth and retained you know, prominent wing claws. They also retained these proto-feather bristles. Yeah, which is pretty cool. I like the flight feathers on the wings observation because it's it's a cool thing to realize that, you know, these didn't give rise to modern birds, but that, you know, there were birds that were much more, or much, very likely, more self-sufficient or ready to be self-sufficient at birth than most modern birds are, which are yeah. pretty darn helpless, which is... That's often a very, as you get more specialized or more complex or whatever it is that's happened, you know, that's in many mammals, the more intelligent mammals are really, really crummy as babies. 
<laughs> it's it's when I talked to uh, Ryan McKellar, who is one of the scientists that worked on this study and has done a few a bunch of amber studies. He pointed out that there are a couple of there are a handful of birds today that do this, mm-hmm. such as uh, like brush turkeys and things like that. Yeah, that their babies are basically born usually in ground nests. Parents don't take care of them at all, and the babies are ready to fly within a few days or so. Oh, that's weird. And this bird looks like it was probably doing that as well. That's that's cool. So, yeah. Quick aside before we wrap this up is that you probably this may be bringing to mind other similar news articles you may have seen because yep. there were two other within the la- last year or so other fossil fe- or feathered fossils preserved in amber. Yep. That are roughly the same age. Mm-hmm. And from the same part of the world because they're from the same source of amber. Yes, these are mines in what is today called the Myanmar and also sometimes called Burma. Mm-hmm. But Burmese amber, some of the most famous amber deposits in the world. Exactly. So there was a a pair of wings from the same group of birds mm-hmm. and a feathered dinosaur tail. Yes, about six months ago. Which was super exciting because, you know, first time we really got to see it connected to the body in yeah. 3D, which was very cool step forward. But this is Amber that is so famous that when I first Googled it to learn more about it, what mostly came up was Etsy and eBay accounts. Oh, yeah. Because it's very popular as jewelry items. And so if you're thinking of what it... If you want to know a mental image of what to look like, think the top of John Hammond's cane in Jurassic Park. Yes. That is exactly what the pictures of Burmese Amber are like is they have lots of insects and they polish it down to these nice orbs mm-hmm. and make very beautiful things. But one of the issues is that they also end up destroying a lot of the stuff that may have been worth studying while turning it into jewelry. Indeed, this piece of amber was broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the head was damaged slightly. The uh, the double wing, the pair of wings was found in a bazaar, like in a oh, jewelry yeah. market, if I remember right. Like they, All- it was almost sold. All three of these, the ones that we've mentioned here, were all out of markets. Mm-hmm. Like the, this new one was sold to a museum mm-hmm. and, yeah. and then picked up by the researchers that studied it. Yep. We should mention real quick and then move on that the this piece of amber, the only reason they were able to investigate it was because they CT scanned the chunk. Mm-hmm. From the outside, only the feet and then some, you know, some feathers were visible. But when they CT scanned it, they were able to see the head and the neck and the the partial wing and all that cool stuff. And even hints of the tail. Cool. Yeah, when you look at the picture, you see the foot clear as day, which is very cool in and of itself. But then the rest is very obscured. Yeah, and we'll have a link up on the the blog so people can Mm -hmm. get to it. Next up, also in the news, another one that that was was making some headlines, uh, at least in the science-y circles, Elephants. A new study... I would make an elephant noise, but I can't. Uh, ele- I don't want to do it into the microphone, because I bet that's obnoxious. <laughs> a study that just came out by Meyer et al. in the journal eLife basically did a genetic analysis of living elephants and a few extinct elephants, and in a subject that's familiar after our discussion in episode 10, kind of rearranged the family tree a little bit. So today there are three species of elephant the Asian elephant, and then the two African elephants, the the forest and the savanna elephant. Asian elephants are close cousins of uh, things like the mammoth, 
And then there are all these other, you know, sort of more distant relatives of elephants, other proboscideans from all over the world. But of particular interest is this genus called Paleoloxodon, which is an Asian and European elephant that's called the straight-tusked elephant. They were huge, even Mm -hmm. bigger than modern elephants. And traditionally, they've been thought to be related to the modern-day Asian elephant based on skeletal information. What this study did was it took mitochondrial DNA and nuclear DNA, so two different parts of the genome, which are inherited in different ways, and threw them into a, a phylogenetic analysis alongside the living elephants and found that they are not, according to the genes, not related to the Asian elephants, but instead grouped within the African elephants. Which is interesting for a few reasons. First of all, this is another good example of genetics. I want to say helping to clear up evolutionary relationships, but since it's so far there's conflicting data, it's confusing evolutionary relationships, but we'll figure it out eventually. Yeah, so the the theme of genetics and morphological studies sometimes contradicting each other. Uh, Until we have Mm -hmm. a lot of good, uh, more good information. More good. More good infor- I, more information that is good, and also gooder information. <laughs> What's also interesting about this is that it it doesn't group as the cousin of the forest and savanna African elephants. It groups as the sister species to the forest elephant, and the two of them oh. as related to the African savanna elephant, which is really interesting because we've only known for about 15 years or so, that the African forest and savanna elephants are different species. Yeah, we're distinct. So this is showing that not only are those two different species, but there was a third species closer related to the forest elephant that split off in the Pleistocene and has since died out. It's also interesting because this means that elephants, sort of modern group the modern-style elephants, left Africa, if this is true, more than once. That the Asian elephant and its lineage left Africa at one point, and then this species broke off of the African forest elephant's lineage and then also moved up into Asia and Europe. Mm-hmm. So we're really refining our understanding of elephant evolution and elephant geography over time. Cool. It's it, That's always one of those weird things to when you have species that are found near each other seem to be similar and all that good stuff. And then, and it's, this is not the nearly the first time that this has happened, mm-hmm. but then you find out it's like, Nope, they both got here by themselves, different times, different ways. Yep. You know, it's, they both ended up here cause this is evidently a good place for elephants to live. Yeah. Africa was crowded. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of, at least two lineages seem to have spread out. Yeah. This also has a touch of conservation paleontology to it because Determining the species relationships of living organisms guides our conservation efforts and what our conservation priority should be, how much diversity we want to focus on and things like that. So this, if this is true, definitely solidifies the case that the African forest and savanna elephants are two different species because there was a third species in between them, Mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it refines how we you know, frame them in our minds of, you know, if you just think, oh yeah, but there's, there's all of these elephants in Africa. And then you realize, nope, there's two 
species in Africa, which now would lower the numbers for both. And it's not one big group. It is two medium groups. Yeah. And the genetic evidence indicated that they've been separated for probably at least 4 million years. Yeah. That these are so distinct they are, species. Yeah, definitely separate, which is very, very cool. And that's, that is a big part of the phylogenies when it comes to conservation is actually determining, right, protecting this area, how many species will we actually be protecting? Mm -hmm. You know, are there two elephant species or just the one? Yeah. Because that makes a difference. Sure does. So lots, that's, it's a, it's a cool little study. Uh, yeah. That we'll have. People will be talking about this for quite some time, I'm sure. Yeah. Elephants are, are pretty exciting. Speaking of sudden realizations... In Africa. In Africa, even. There was a another news article uh, that I, I had a couple of people I know you know mention and, and send me links because they were blown away by it. It's a redating of an old discovery mm -hmm. that now, if everything lines up, is the oldest Homo sapiens. Yes. And not by a little bit, but by a good bit. A skull found in Morocco, originally discovered in 1961 mm -hmm. in mines there. So it, it's been a while that we've had this. Originally, it was dated to be about 160,000 years old. It was radiometric dating of a tooth. And they, they actually thought it was a, an African Neanderthal, a Neanderthal. A new study that took a better look at it, both the skull and the sediment around it, put a date on it of 300,000 years old. Before this new research, the oldest dating was 195,000 years old of a fossil in the Rift Valley, which is where we typically think of as being the origin or main area where humans were in our early times. Yeah, way out in East Africa, where yeah. all the earliest, uh, earliest Homo sapiens stuff comes from. Exactly. It, it's very intense, and it has some major support for it. The fact that, first off, they went back to the site to be able to try to date the soil and, and things like that. What they found was a charred flint tool, mm -hmm. a burnt flint tool that they were able to obtain the date from. And once again, redating a tooth. But it also lines up with the dates for zebra, leopard, and antelope that were in those layers that already had established dates. Nice. So they have a lot of things pointing to that this is a correct dating and that it's it's it really is that old. Which is really cool because not only is it way older, that that's a, mm -hmm. at least a good 100,000 years older than the next oldest Homo sapiens, mm -hmm. it's also on the other side of Africa. Yeah, it's in the seemingly wrong spot. Like, it's not where we were expecting to find humans going back that far. Yeah, Morocco is in the way north west mm -hmm. whereas ethiopia and this the, the classic cradle of homo sapiens is is way in the east and so there, there's a lot of cool stuff like this this news article has a lot to it that point brings up one of the cool observations in that this shows that most likely early humans were not centralized but spread out yeah and so we were a much more widespread interbreeding population across of africa which is very cool yeah. The fact that they found burnt flint tools meant they, of course, were using tools, but also using fire. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of other things that the, that can be drawn from this. One of the more interesting direct observations of the skull is that the face looks very human. The back is still slightly elongated. 
So it mm. looks like we developed our facial fe- if the the new dating of this shows they noticed that when they first found it, but with the new date that now suggests that we developed facial features, the modern facial features first, and then our yes. skull followed. Yeah, which is cool and. Evidently, Neanderthals show a similar pattern, developing Neanderthal facial features before the back of their head forms to their, their what they would eventually be. Interesting. Yeah. The skull also did have larger teeth, so it still had some things that were... Uh, one, one person they quoted said that he would call it a proto-modern instead of modern human. So it's not pre-human, but it's, it's definitely a little different. It's it's super interesting when you talk about human evolution because the detail that we have is so fine and, and mm-hmm. the the dating methods and the, the, the amount of material that we have is so extensive that you not only can look at how did the different species give rise to each other and, and, and what changed over the course of millions of years of human evolution, you can also say what has changed since the early Homo sapiens to modern Homo sapiens, mm-hmm. changes within the species, which is really uh, a cool thing that you do not get to do with a lot of fossil species. Yeah, it's it's taken under a very fine-looking glass, which is pretty cool. Yep. Like I said, this one has a ton that could be gone into, but this is new section, so that will be... <laughs> <laughs> another episode. Now. Yes. The final bit of news is a bit of a a topic that we haven't really talked too much about, and this is a study on a famous dinosaur fossil deposit in Utah called the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry. This is part of the Morrison Formation, which is the famous late Jurassic dinosaur formation from out west. Stegosaurus, Allosaurus, Diplodocus, all your favorite Jurassic dinosaurs come out of here. This is a particular fossil site in that formation that has been known for a really long time to have a lot of cool dinosaur fossils in a very strange ratio. So this is a quarry in which there are lots and lots of dinosaurs, uh, fossils, at least nine different kinds of dinosaurs, but more than half of them are Allosaurus, Mm -hmm. which is a big predatory dinosaur. And that's unusual. You don't normally get that many predators, that many yeah. large predators, occupying most of your fossil deposit. Especially since predators in almost every ecosystem are the minority. They they are always yes. less common than and, any other animal in the ecosystem. Yeah, and that's usually reflected in your fossil sites. Mm-hmm. So that has raised the question of what what was this site? Yeah. And pe- people have suggested a few different things. Um, the first thing I probably that comes to mind is that it's a predator trap, mm-hmm. uh, a site that was attracting predators and then they were dying there for some reason. People have suggested that it might have been a poisoned body of water that things were coming to and then being killed in yeah. place. And there's been evidence for a number of different hypotheses None of the evidence has been perfect. A new study that just came out by Peterson et al. in the Pier J basically took a really close-up look at the bones that are found there and the sediments that are found there to investigate a field of study we have not talked anything about in this podcast so far, which is called taphonomy, which Mm -hmm. is an entire field of investigation that asks the question, 
what happened to this creature after it died and before we found it. Mm-hmm. All the stuff that happens after death or during death of a fossil creature. This study is extraordinarily technical, but the basic gist is when they looked at the sediments in this deposit, they found lots of particular minerals, particularly heavy metals like barite and sulfide, that indicate a unique environment that these fossils were being laid down in. And they looked at the bone fragments and investigated the features, the damages on the bone fragments, and the, the mineralization in the bone fragments to kind of get an idea of what was happening to these fragments. What is the pattern of damage and the pattern of change on them as they were deposited, as they sat in this site? And what the two of those basically converged on is, one, that this was not a, a, a one-time event. That the bone fragments show evidence of being buried and then eroded out and weathered and then buried again. Yeah. That this was most likely, and based also on the geology, that this was a seasonal area where you were having wetting and drying. That this this particular deposit was probably a pond that was dry some parts of the year and filled in the other times yeah. of the year. The high concentration of heavy metals leads them to assume, to infer, that this was a hyper-eutrophic body of water, which is to say super nutrient-rich, which sounds like a good thing, but what happens when you have a body of water that's super full of nutrients is that it becomes super full of algae. Mm-hmm. And the algae basically suck the oxygen out of the water, and it leads to basically these sort of fetid, uninhabitable bodies of water. Yeah. Their inference here is essentially that this was a place where dinosaurs were dying nearby, or in this very place, being washed into this lake area during the wet periods, and essentially rotting right there in the pond. Oh, and that the process of decomposition was what was feeding all of this nutrient into the water, creating this sort of stagnant, gross pond. And then they would sit there, they would decompose, the, wet, the dry season would come, the bones would get eroded, then the wet season would come, and you gradually over time accumulated this collection of dinosaur fossils. Interesting. Yeah. The hypothesis of it being a gross, oxygen-poor, nasty little pond is also supported by the fact that there are no pond organisms found there. Yeah. Which was a big curiosity that they're not seeing turtles and crocodilians and fish, and they're not seeing the sort of bite marks and, and gnaw marks that you normally get from scavengers in, in freshwater like this on the bones. So their explanation is... Things couldn't live in this water, right? If their if their in inference is correct that this was basically a rotting pool where carcasses were collecting, the reason they were being preserved so well is because nothing else was there to disturb them. Yep. And they were building up a, a a what turns out today to be a really nifty assemblage of dinosaur bones. Yeah. It, it areas that are inhospitable to other animals make really good for. Fossilization. They sure do. Mm-hmm. 
So this is a neat little study. Once again, it's by no means conclusive. This is another hypothesis, and they say it right there in the paper that there's going to be more investigation, and we'll see what else comes out of uh, of the data that we have. Yeah. But it's a neat glimpse into the the question of how do we interpret geologic deposition, how do we interpret past environments, and how do we understand what happened to these bones and these these animals after they died? How did they get into the ground? What mm-hmm. were the circumstances surrounding their burial? This sort of stuff, taphonomy is always a cool one because this is when you really start, when paleontology becomes most like crime investigation. Yes. Where you're having to look at it very much like a crime site. And we, you know, investigative mentality and thoughts are always present in paleontology. If you find a crocodile, fish scales, a water turtle, you know you're dealing with an aquatic environment. Mm -hmm. But now when you ask, okay, was this animal, did it die and was immediately buried? Was it scavenged first? Did it, you know, fall and get killed? And therefore was, you know, those things are all very much you're now having to look at all the little clues see what's missing, like, why are there no aquatic organisms here? Yeah. And you're really having to draw, and it's it's tricky because a lot can happen after an animal dies. Like, there's plenty of studies on paleopathologies of looking at the injuries, but after an animal dies, it could be eaten. It yeah. could be pushed around by scavengers that don't eat all of it, but just move everything. Yeah. That gnaw on it or something. It could be washed away. Part of it could be washed away. <laughs> it could be... It could weathered. Uh, it could bloat and float. Yes, bloat and float. It, it fills up with nasty gases and then floats on the surface of the ocean or the river or the lake, slowly dropping pieces of itself onto the, <laughs> the, like the snowing the underwater snowing carcass. Yeah, <laughs> it's I one had of my a, favorite terms. I had a colleague uh, when I was an undergraduate who studied taphonomy and the way that she her her method of investigating taphonomic studies was she would collect roadkill deer mm-hmm. and then hide them in specific places nearby the campus, like off in the woods and stuff, and then just keep track of what happened to them as time went on. Yeah, and that's, that's well, it's like the body farms that do yep. the same thing with human bodies so that criminal investigators, if they find a body, can go, wait, we've seen this before. Right. If a body is underwater for at least blah, 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 we see this happen. So we know yep. that we're looking for... It's the same concept. Uh, I, I think it was you that told me the story about the guy who tried to look at how to tell a bone break from a fall versus after the fact. And, Sounds familiar. Uh, dropped frogs out of the bell tower <laughs> at his, yes. that, at his a, university. This was a story that my advisor told me about someone he knew. So you're getting this story like five degrees separated. So I don't know. Yeah, this is this is the oral tradition. It's, yeah. It, Once there was a man. The story was that this scientist, this was back when this was marginally acceptable. Basically, his idea was, I want to know what happens to animals when they fall, because he was studying cave fossils. Yeah, and natural trap caves are very common where you fall through the roof. So the story goes that he took a bunch of frogs up to the top of the campus bell tower and threw them off the bell tower because he wanted to see what what did the break look like in their bones. This sounds horrible, but it has a happy ending, I promise. And then what happened was that the fall, turns out that frog terminal velocity was (laughs) not fast enough to actually hurt them. 
So they just spread their little arms out, landed on the grass, and started hopping away, and he had to run down the bell tower and go get him. <laughs> Once again, completely oral tradition. The next time I see uh, Russ, I will have to ask him how true that story is, if I'm remembering it correctly. Yeah. But it's a, it's a I, neat little story. I know at least the terminal velocity part of it is true. <laughs> yes. That, that is something frogs and a lot of other animals do, and it's super cool to think that there are animals that could jump off of whatever building they wanted, <laughs> just go, and then boop. hop away. Well, that's why, like, if you flick a cockroach across the room, yeah. it's not necessarily going to kill it, because it's, exactly. it weighs nothing, and so its weight's not going to do anything to it. Yeah, there are ants that actually use that to their advantage. There's, uh, this is, we're getting off on tangents. Yeah, I we, know, should, crazy. we should wrap this up. But there are ants that crawl, climb trees, and if they get knocked off, which happens a lot, they can angle themselves, because they're aerodynamic backwards, and they'll angle themselves and fly back toward the tree. But, <laughs> that's super cool. Right? So they don't have to climb all the way back up, but they know they're in, in no danger because if they fall, they just have to climb a tree. <laughs> oh, boy. So that's dinosaur taphonomy. Yeah. <laughs> Which also <laughs> and frogs wraps and up the news. And that's, and that's the way it was. And that's the way it was. So, with the news wrapped up, we go into our subject now, which is Antarctic paleontology. Woohoo! Which is a pretty cool subject. Very good suggestion. So, Antarctica is the southernmost continent. It is a very large continent that is covered mostly in ice. And even the parts that aren't still are very cold. And during parts of the year, it is in all darkness. And in other parts of the year, it's in all. It's super weird. Strange continent. It's a very weird continent. And it actually has a really rich paleontological history and mm -hmm. fossil history, but it's hard to get to. Yes. For lots of reasons. And so before we go into kind of the specifics of that, I want to, the things planned to cover is we, we want to go into the history of the continent. You know, how did it change as it went through Earth's history? Mm -hmm. How have we discovered some of the things? You know, what is the, then the human relationship with the continent be? And then we'll talk about some of the aspects of digging there and the fossils that have been found there. Yes. I think that, uh, and you kind of hinted at this already, one of the biggest surprises that always comes up when, when I talk to people about Antarctica is the fact that it is just a continent. Mm -hmm. It has rivers and lakes and valleys and mountains and volcanoes. Yeah. It's just like any other continent, except that it is covered in ice that is sometimes miles thick. Yeah. is And it's it's in a unique part of the world so that it it's on the axis so it experiences the seasons differently than everyone else yes. does to where when we get cold they get dark yes exactly <laughs> so it's it's a continent like any other that is in a strange place mm -hmm. at what is also a strange time in earth's history yes so antarctica was born originally part of Gondwana, which was one of the, the supercontinents that you will often hear about. Mm -hmm. During the Cambrian, it was full, you know very well nestled in Gondwana. Yeah, so Gondwana, for, for folks, for a very long time, the southern continents have had a close, uh, intimate relationship. Yep. Uh, Gondwana is this landmass that has kind of been around and been part of, it was part of Pangaea, and then it split mm -hmm. and it was still Gondwana, that for a long time, South America, Africa, Australia, India, and Antarctica have been joined. Yes. Uh, and, and kind of spread out and come together 
for a long time. So Antarctica has a history. Of, that That's what Gondwana refers to, is yes, this continent is. made up of those continents. And so this supercontinent had moved around a bit, and later on, as we talk about, started to split up and things shifted even more. Mm-hmm. So starting in the Cambrian, when we were first going to start getting our fossil stuff and our things like that, the a lot of this is split in between West and East Antarctica because it, once again, is a large continent, so two parts of it can be in very different climatic zones. Yeah. West Africa was actually in the Northern Hemisphere, fear, West or at least partially. Huh? Oh, yes, yes, uh, West Antarctica. Yes. Um, That's uh, another episode. We Africa. have too many A continents. I've always said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> West America. <laughs> the West Ostrophon Africa. Um... <laughs> Anywho, West Antarctica was actually partially in the Northern Hemisphere, and therefore would have been, you know, had a, my, a climate to show that, a pretty mild climate. East Antarctica was on the equator, and uh, we see lots of seafloor invertebrates, uh, like trilobites, really flourishing around the, the tropical seas that would have been around that. Yeah. And within the parts of the land underwater. So this was actually a really nice time like if you had lived there it would have been pretty comfortable yeah it was a tropical continent in the yeah. early Paleozo- uh, paleozoic and so uh during the start of the devonian we're looking at 416 million years ago gondwana has started to go more southern move mm-hmm. into the southern latitudes climate of course starts to become cooler but the the fossils and the life does not suffer really there are actually land plants known from that time so we start seeing foliage Yep. Showing up on... And right now we're talking mostly about General Gondwana, because once again, this is one landmass. It's not until later that it starts to break up and we start getting separate pieces. Yes. We do get glaciation at the end of the Devonian around 360 million years ago, and now it's become centered on the South Pole, or started part of Gondwana has become centered on the South Pole, and we're getting much cooler, but we still have plants remaining this is still warmer than it would be today yes the world in general it was much warmer this was not a time where you would have had frozen poles in in the same way that you have them today exactly and that becomes important later on because life in antarctica even while it's you know situated mostly where it is now was very different because of this general warmer time Mm -hmm. so now we're getting into the permian and plant life became you know we started seeing lots of fern like plants indicative of often swamp like environments so we were looking at probably very swampy antarctica yeah you get coal deposits from yeah this, this is exactly these these swamps were what led to coal deposits that are uh, yep. found in the trans antarctic mountains yeah so definitely uh this this is a a warm enough place mhm it's and which is also just super cool it's it's We've known that the Earth has gone through changes, but it's really crazy to think that the now least hospitable place on the planet (laughs) used to be full of stuff. Yeah, forests and swamps and all sorts of cool stuff. The warming actually continued, and we had a very dry and hot climate Mm -hmm. over much of Gondwana for a time. And that's when we get into the Mesozoic, where it's still getting warm. The Age of Reptiles. And so at this point, much of that glaciation we talked about has melted over Gondwana, and it actually becomes a bit of a desert. So it's it's actually dry and hot now, which is yeah. very different. East Antarctica, we see seed ferns 
become established. Mm-hmm. And a lo- number of other plants, uh, ginkgo trees, cycads are all very plentiful. We see conifer forests in West Antarctica. So this is very lush environments across Antarctica. And of course, now that we're in the Mesozoic, we start seeing reptiles and dinosaurs yeah. living in Antarctica. Absolutely. And we found a few of them. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of, they said, uh, one of the things I was reading said lots of ammonites were very common in the seas around Antarctica. Yep. So very flourishing oceans, which is actually not that different today. Antarctic waters are actually very full of life because yeah. cold water holds lots of oxygen, which makes yep. it good to be life rich. Yeah. You get a lot of nutrient collection over there mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive to think, but the, the, Crystal clear waters around the Caribbean islands or the Bahamas or Hawaii are actually very poor for life. Yeah. The only reason they're usually good is that they're shallow, which lets sun in, which promotes coral reefs and so forth. But right, right. The water itself is not where you typically see whales because there's not enough. Yeah, not not a lot of fuel. It's, it's a little dry. Now, we'll get into the specifics of the dinosaurs that were found there later on, uh, mm-hmm. but th- we've only found a bit, but we know they were there, and they had a variety, so yeah, this was a, a cool place to be. During the Mesozoic is when Gondwana starts to break up. Yes. About 160 million years ago, we start to see things separating. Africa separates from Antarctica and the Jurassic mm-hmm. during this time, and then after that, the Indian subcontinent in early Cretaceous. So it was it was a slow breakup. We weren't just seeing it going pop. Yeah, it but gradually over time. Yeah, we started seeing the continents sh- shift apart in the main, main land masses. So when we get to the end of the Cretaceous, Antarctica still connected with Australia. It still had a subtropical climate and the flora and fauna to show that. It also, when we start getting past the Cretaceous, had marsupials. Yes, it did. Which is cool. Yeah. And so it's, I, I love that it had, you know, had we been able to see Antarctica in its heyday, would have looked like something we probably don't see anywhere else today, because it had this weird connection with all the southern continents. Yeah. Uh, Antarctica is actually, if I remember my mammal history correctly, how marsupials got to Australia. Right, right. It, 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 I believe uh, marsupials are thought to have originated, I think, North America, but, but certainly mm-hmm. in the Americas. And then they moved during yep. the Mesozoic, uh, most likely, from South America to Antarctica and to Australia again. Just a hop and a skip. Yeah. So now we have this Antarctica-Australia landmass. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting into the Eocene. And about 40 million years ago, Australia and New Guinea separate. Yes. And leaving Antarctica by itself on the South Pole. It shaped the way we, we now... Recognize it. Now it has the outline you picture when you hold your globe upside down. So this allowed a couple of things to happen that actually become really important for the climate. Mm -hmm. Now that Antarctica is separated, the currents around Antarctica, the the water and oceanic currents begin to change and isolate Antarctica. The circum-Antarctic current basically traps, it heats not very much getting in or out. Yes. And so that's that's a big deal to realize uh, when it comes to global climates is if you were to heat Earth up, it'll change things. But if a current is flowing a certain way, it can still keep an area cold. Yep. That comes up at just quick example from the aquarium, but one of our 
touch habitats is for the anemones and the sea stars and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's super cool, but they're West Coast. You know, they're California up to Alaska animals. Yep. Which means that they are in water that we keep at 52 degrees. Mm-hmm. About 10 degrees Celsius, which is frigid when, especially when Floridians are the ones touching, when Florida yes. natives are the ones <laughs> putting their hands in. They're like, what the ha? And it's baffling when you're like, oh, yeah, it's because it's from California. And the first thing your brain goes is, no, 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 California is warm. Yes, but the water isn't. <laughs> yes, because it's coming down from the north. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, currents make a big deal. And that happens here in Antarctica. And we start to see ice begin to appear. Yeah. over uh, As the, the Paleogene moves into the Neogene, right? The early part of the Cenozoic moves into yeah. the later part of the Cenozoic. The world starts getting colder. Yes. And Antarctica start right. It, it's there's no heat being brought to it from these ocean currents. Uh, certainly not very much, and so it's it's sort of become isolated in its own little cold pole down there. This sounds like the origin to Antarctica's supervillain story. Sure does. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> its and wife so, had a terminal illness, and then it right? couldn't save her, and it really wanted to save her, but and it, it lost its job because of Spider-Man and. <laughs> <laughs> you just jumped you you jumped comic book companies on me. <laughs> I was being much more relevant <laughs> to the continent. Uh, I just I had to. <laughs> the new movie's coming out and I'm excited, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Comes out four days before my birthday. It is meant to be. So Antarctica, the world is getting colder. Antarctica is now isolated. Everything is set up for it to get cold. Mm-hmm. 23 million years ago, the Drake Passage is open between Antarctica and South America, and this finally sets, you know, finalizes that circumpolar current. Yes. And since about 15 million years ago, the continent has been covered in ice. Yes. So the, there, there was ice formation, and, and this is a really important point, that the poles have not been covered in ice for much of Earth's history. No. That for the last 15 million years or so, 15, 20 million years uh, thereabouts, the Earth has entered a time where the climate is cool enough that the ice that forms in the winter doesn't melt in the summer. Yes. So you would, you could have had, you would definitely have had snow in the winter yeah. on Antarctica going all, way back into the Cretaceous and such, but in the summer it melts. Yeah, it was probably still very cold. Yeah. But the idea of the cold north and south that we are so used to nowadays of a a white top and bottom to the earth has not been the norm. No. Antarctica has been in an ice age for the last 20 million years or so. Yes. Now, the one cool thing that it mentions is that the the cooling of Antarctica was not just a gradual. It actually happened in, like, step. It just happened in, in sequences. So as the continents changed their positions, the oceanic currents would change as well and then stabilize, and then they change and stabilize for a bit. And so we got these yeah. steps of it. There there are a few really interesting things to point out about this history that Antarctica has. One is, briefly, we talked about the fact that it was lush, and it was covered in forest, and it had swamps mm-hmm. and things like this, even though it was at the pole. Yeah. Which means that these were polar forests, forests that experienced... Probably very cold winters, forests that experience several months of darkness and several months yeah. of light. This is a this is a type of biome that does not exist today. 
and it's really hard to predict exactly how it would be functioning. Yeah. You know, did every did, did things cease activity during those months of darkness or were mm-hmm. there, you know, was there nighttime goings on that would last for months? Yeah. And it's very cool stuff. This being said, Antarctica, of course, is not devoid of life nowadays. No, not at all. Yeah, it's got plants still. It has uh, you know, a variety. It even has fungi. Mm-hmm. It's got the penguins that it's so famous for. Yep. No polar bears, just just to clarify for everyone. No, they're just up north. Yep. Yeah. So anytime you see polar bears and penguins hanging out in anything, that's the same as seeing a caveman and a, a dinosaur play together. That's not <laughs> something that happens. Nope. And lots of oceanic life. You know, we have... Yes. Uh, plenty of seal species there and so forth. So it, it is still has life, but it is very different. It is life that's clinging on to the edges of the habitable areas or braving the truly harsh habitats of Antarctica. Yeah. The farther you go from the tropics, the less diversity of life you tend to have. And this yes. is pretty much at the extreme of that. Yeah. And so it's it's very different than it used to be. Uh, and Antarctica also has some other cool things. It has some very old rocks. Like it has some of the older rocks that we found. Some that go back further, or that are dated back further than three billion years old. Yeah. The history of Antarctica is a pretty interesting one. I, I did not know most of this until I started learning about this episode. But we have not known about Antarctica for very long. No, it was it was very mysterious. Yeah. So for the longest time. There, there was actually assumptions by, uh, I mean, going back to the first century AD, there were assumptions by people that there had to be something they called Terra Australis, yes. which is saying the southern continent. Yes. Austra means south. Yes. That gets very confusing when people talk about things like Australasia and, you yes. know, you, you'll hear Aust, or uh, there are dinosaurs that are that are named, or like Australopithecus. Yes. It's not from Australia. It means they all spoke with an Australian accent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I almost started, I was like, that, right? no. Right. Well, no. So the joke that I should have made is that they're chipping at their tools. <laughs> I had a bunch of Australopithecus chipping at their tools, and one goes, that's not a knife. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is a but knife. They didn't make stone knives. They made boomerangs. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> so... Yes. Terra Australis was this idea that early civilizations had, and now their idea was that there had to be this southern continent to balance the northern lands of Europe and Asia and North America. So it was much more of a metaphysically... So that the Earth has good feng shui. Exactly, yeah. It was very much yeah. this idea of, we can't all be on the top. That's ridiculous. There has to be one on the bottom. Uh, <laughs> and that was basically as far as it went. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't until about... 19 or 1820 that someone saw Antarctica for the Mm. first time hadn't landed on it yet but we saw it there's an interesting point that uh, one thing I was reading wanted to went to make as to why Antarctica is not named Terra Australis Hmm. which would be the southern continent and it's because Australia was discovered first and the people who discovered it basically said there's no way there's a continent further south than this of any sizable Notion. Yeah. Terra Australis, which eventually turned into Australia. Oh. So they said, this is as, this is as south as it gets. Yeah, yeah, this is, it's, what are you talking about? This is, that's crazy. 
And then we discovered Antarctica. And so cool. it couldn't be named Australia. <laughs> now, evidently, there's some debate on to when the first people set foot on there. Mm-hmm. There's there's a couple of different dates that fly around. One's just a year after it was found. The one that is confirmed is it was in 1895. It was the first time someone landed on Antarctica. Between being seen and that time and up until, uh, was it 1907, which was one of the first major expeditions on it, but there was lots of expeditions going around, like sailing to, sailing near, sailing around, but not landing. There wasn't as many landing on Antarctica, but we, we kind of went like this, around, just kind of moved around it back and forth. Yeah. The reason I wanted to mention the 1907 expedition is because it is the Nimrod expedition. Yeah. And that was when they climbed Mount Erebus mm-hmm. and reached South Magnetic Pole. Very cool. Yeah. Did they reach the South Magnetic Pole in 1907? That's what I found. Said. As my source says, uh, Amundsen, the Norwegian ex- uh, expedition, reached it in 1911, which was the first one to reach the South Pole. Oh. See, that's, maybe, that's, that was... maybe that's the first one to reach the like geographic South Pole. Yeah. That was one thing that uh, I found while looking at stuff is there's a lot of dispute as to what stuff happened. There's even like the it was cited in 1820. It is debated between three different captains whose huh. crew was the one who saw it. Like there's a lot of debate because it's all different countries and everyone wants to be the one that did it. Interesting. Oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. Roald Amundsen, the first expedition to read the geographic South Pole. All right, cool. A year before the famous Robert Falcon Scott reached the pole, saw a bunch of plant fossils on their expedition, and then disappeared and were never found. Yes, yes. And they, they, <laughs> uh, they. Well, I guess they were found. They just, they, they didn't make it back. Yeah, the, uh, the William Hammer video I watched, he mentioned them. Hmm. When they found them later, and, uh, found the fossils that they had discovered, which brings us into the, the one of the next things, is that plant fossils were the first fossils in Antarctic fossils discovered. Yes. Now, imagine their surprise. Yeah. In this frozen wasteland of a continent to find fossils, not just of plants, but of successful warm yeah. climate plants. There's, you know, ferns and so forth and cool stuff like that. Yeah. So... That's expeditions in general. The uh, you know we started putting research bases up. The first permanent research base. There's been lots of temporary and there's been lots of seasonal, but the first permanent one was in 1958, and it's still active to today. The there's now others as well, but paleo expeditions uh, are a bit different and tricky because this is not an easy place to go and work at. Yeah, I we should mention that. The, the sort of history of science in Antarctica is, is really cool, even before you get into paleontology, yeah. that there was this sort of exploration age that, you know, in the, the late 1700s into the 1800s of people going near Antarctica, spotting Antarctica, landing on Antarctica, maybe. But in the mid-1900s, a bunch of nations got together and actually agreed uh, they had their, this was the, they, they had the, they held the International Geophysical Year. Mm-hmm. In 1957 to 58, where they basically, it was a dozen countries that said, hey, let's not fight over this. Let's just use it for exploration and yeah. study and conservation. And since then, Antarctica has been a prime place for the study of astronomy, meteorology, climate, 
uh, magnetism, mm-hmm. all sorts of cool stuff. Because it's a great, you know, there's no light pollution. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, you know, nothing's interfering with your equipment aside from, you know, death <laughs> inducing climate cold. trying to kill you. Yeah. Uh, these <laughs> days, of course, it's super important for climate studies, uh, mm-hmm. past and present. Yeah, charting how it changes there. Yes, but it's it's been this sort of the continent of scientific exploration for half a century now. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool, and it's it's cool to me because a similar thing, you know, has happened with with the moon and the fact that no one country can own or claim the moon. Yes, which is cool because that means Antarctica and the moon are treated very similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Antarctica was was. The moon before the moon. Because basically everyone said, all right, no one can live in these places. So yes. <laughs> let's not fight over it. <laughs> let's just learn about it. So it's it's a cool place. And the paleontology there is also really cool. Uh, there haven't been a lot of expeditions there because it's hard to survive there. We already talked about an expedition that didn't make it back. Yep. You basically have to fly into most places. Like Even if you take a boat in, you have to fly to wherever you're going to be. Yep. Which is going to be helicopters or, you know, sometimes planes. Once again, I, I, William Hammer is a paleontologist who's made a number of trips there. Uh, absolutely look him up. Watched a video where he was talking about, and he mentioned they took uh, old military cargo planes to get there. And they had hmm. sleds instead of wheels. But when they were going to take off, if they couldn't get enough speed up, they had rocket-assisted takeoff. <laughs> <laughs> where they would fire these giant rockets to propel them forward fast enough for the propellers to take over. Wow. Right? Like, this is a place you sometimes need rockets to leave. (laughs) I believe it's also really hard to land a boat there. Yes. Because this this came up in Planet Earth 2, where an Antarctic uh, uh, biological study group was pointing out that there's only a handful of places that they could land and safely make it onto the land. A handful of spots of land instead of just ice. Yes, like, you can't you can't moor to ice. <laughs> That's may not yeah. be there tomorrow. Well, there's a lot of sea ice, and then there's all it's, it's just a lot of rocky cliffs. Mm-hmm. You know, not not like we said. Not all of Antarctica is covered in ice. The places that paleontologists go to dig are particularly a lot of the more northern, which is to say more yes. outer, because every direction on Antarctica is north. Yep, outer. Islands, things like that. There's also the mountains of Antarctica. There are a lot of mountains and valleys that are not covered in ice, or uh, not covered in ice, ice sheets, where you can actually access the geology. Yeah, the peninsula is a very popular one, which is the little squiggly mm-hmm. bit that's coming off of Antarctica. Yeah. And so the the one of the first expeditions was in 1969, this is once again from that video. He he quoted an interesting number, which was that between then and 2008, so roughly 40 years, only nine expeditions made it to Antarctica. Mm, paleontological expeditions. Yes, paleontological ones. And so it's it's very rare that we can do it. There's actually a organization called the Antarctic Peninsular Paleontology Project, or yep. AP3. AP3. They are dedicated to going to Antarctica and specifically looking for late Cretaceous and early Paleogene fossils. Mm-hmm. One of the main things they're hoping often to find are Cretaceous age mammals. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, but they're looking for fossils falling on that 
border to see how Antarctica affected the dispersal of life at that time and yes. the animals that led to our modern groupings. Even they have made just three expeditions. Yeah, since in 2009. 2009, 2011, and 2016. Yeah, they were they made headlines all yeah. last year because they it, it's a big deal kind of expedition. Yeah, so this isn't something like, for instance, when people are digging out in Montana, they will often have you know yearly digs where they will truck everyone out, camp, yeah. and dig for the summer, and then come back. You yeah, know? this isn't like that. <laughs> Even. You, even Neil Shubin and 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 friends who found Tiktaalik up in the Arctic, mm-hmm. I think even they were going up every year. Yeah, helicoptering in for for a number of years. This is a place where for like the AP three, it's roughly every four to three you know years that they were making it there. Yeah, and so it's it's for the number of reasons. One, it is in darkness a number of months out of the year, yep. which makes it effectively unworkable. Mm-hmm. If there's any sort of weather conditions, which there are definitely going to be extremes of polar storms and so forth, mm-hmm. and you have to take into consideration that you are effectively cut off for however long you're there, and so oh, yeah. you have to be ready to survive on your own for however long you're going to be there, which is not is no small feat. No, that what that plane drops you off, and that basically it's all right. We'll be back on the date we yeah. agreed on. Be here. <laughs> yes, yeah. Meet us back here. <laughs> if you aren't here when we show up, uh, then we'll, we'll come back again. <laughs> yeah. And then be here then. So it requires a lot of specific planning. It requires mm-hmm. a lot of specific prep. And perhaps one of the biggest reasons why expeditions don't go out there very often is it requires a lot of funding. Yes. It's very not specific cheap. funding. And in fact, I think that's one of the reasons... AP3 was making such a big deal all of last year was to get the word out and and, and sort of explain why this is important, why this is interesting, why this is cool to draw some more attention and and get more people to join, get more people to help with preparations, to help with funding, to help with planning. Yeah, this is a worthwhile place to look and to study. Yes, indeed. Whenever we find things here, it is a big deal because it's hard to get there and now getting getting into the actual fossils the fossils are very rare and often in very rough condition yes we we were saying before that antarctica when we were talking before the episode we mentioned that antarctica has a lot more fossils than you'd expect it to have mhm but it doesn't have a lot of fossils no and so for antarctica it's very rich but Yes, it, they're in rough condition, uh, and this is this is for a couple reasons. There's not a lot of fossil-bearing rocks that are accessible because there right. may be tons of places under the ice that'd be great, but it's under sometimes thousands of feet of ice. Yeah, I think uh, one thing I was saying on average, it's about six thousand feet thick, so a mile. <laughs> yeah, so it's it is ridiculously thick, so it's unaccessible. It, it, there's probably a lot that we just can't get to. Uh, I'll say yet, because if trends stay the way they are going, we will eventually. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> just keep yeah. drive your Hummer around yeah. the block a few extra times. Let's and just do some do some donuts. Let's go find those some fossils. fossils. <laughs> Silver linings, people! Hooray! Yoo-hoo. 
so that's part of it. They're also hard to excavate. So yep. it's not easy to get fossils out of those rocks when you're dealing in often sub-zero climates. Yeah, I imagine, having not been there, but I imagine that it's very difficult to handle a rock hammer when you can't feel your hands. Yes, and when you're wearing thick, thick you know, nylon padded gloves. So they're usually they're usually very fragmented fossils. Mm-hmm. The surface of Antarctica has also been covered in ice for quite a while, so that you know things like that can often beat things up. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty rare. But there's been some cool fossil discoveries. Indeed. Yeah, we mentioned plants. They've they've found fossils of just about every group. You know, you typically expect to find fossils of. Like we said, we have ammonites and trilobites from there. We have lots of fish. Mm-hmm. We do have some dinosaurs. We've got birds. We've got mammals. It's it's got fossils of stuff. It's just we um, on many of them there is a single specimen or just yeah. a handful, or maybe yeah. only one of a group. <laughs> it's yes. like yes, we technically have mammals, but we only have like this many. Yeah, or we we technically have this group, but we don't. We have fragments and we don't really know what it is. Yeah, it is, we know it's got to be one of these. Yeah. Before I get into some of the other specifics, since we were talking about AP3, they made a really cool discovery on their last expedition, which mm-hmm. is super interesting. Um, so they were looking, once again, for Cretaceous mammals. Yeah. We should mention uh, that the when you go to Antarctica, the fossil deposits that are exposed there tend to be either... It's particularly in the mountains, you have Paleozoic fossils, mm-hmm. Devonian, Permian, you know, old, uh, a lot of marine deposits. Yes. Uh, as well as a lot of those old coal plant deposits. And then most of the rest of them on, the, on a lot of the islands and the peninsula, <laughs> and the peninsular area are layers that start in the, or in the Mesozoic, a lot of Cretaceous through the Paleocene into the Eocene. So the end of the Age of Dinosaurs into the first several million years of the Age of Mammals. And so like you said, AP3 was looking in that Cretaceous into Paleogene area. Which is one of those where that's a an interesting time in Earth's history to look at, but also when you only have so much rock to look at, mm-hmm. it kind of narrows what you're going to study when you go there. because. Yeah. If you're like, I really want to know about the Triassic. All right, well, then go somewhere else. Uh. Yeah. Well, and that, that's one of the nice things about Antarctica is that it is a source of Cretaceous finds. In fact, Antarctica is one of the places in the world where you can find the K, uh, KPG boundary. Yes. Where you can actually f- see the layer that we talked about in episode five, where the extinction at the end of the Cretaceous happened. Yeah. And a number of studies have investigated what was that extinction like in Antarctica? What was it like yeah. in, the, in the southernmost reaches of the world? Because you're dealing with a very different climate than the rest of the world. And the KPG boundary actually is what one of the coolest discoveries they made on this last expedition had to do with. So they were looking for those mammals. They did not find the mammals they were looking for. Mm-hmm. One of the things they did find, though, was a layer of fish fossils just above the KPG boundary. Huh. So just after the extinction. Just after a very you know, noticeable concentration of fish, fish fossils. What the, the question that this brings up, or the, the potential situation they may have with this deposit, 
is this could be a mass die-off directly connected with that event. Interesting. Which are, as the as uh, Ming, who is one of the main people on the expedition, put it, it's, those sort of deposits are very rare, and they don't know that that's this. There's no direct evidence for that yet. Mm-hmm. But if it is, that would be very interesting. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. So they, they have found some cool stuff there. And there's a number of really interesting fossils. And you know, once again, we're not going to list off every fossil found in Antarctica. No, we can, we'll hit some highlights. Yeah. So w- one of my the favorite first things that I learned was that there have been some very large amphibians found there. Hmm from a group called the Labyrinthodonts. Right. Big ones. Like, we're talking four to five, you know, meters long on some of them. Uh, Kulasukas is one that had that very wide head. And so these are 16-foot amphibians that were found. Cool. From those swampy days. Yeah, from the the late Paleozoic. Yeah. Before the, the reptiles kicked in. And one of the cool things that, a point they made, is that this meant that during all of Antarctica's history, amphibians were able to survive at some point there, but crocs never, may, or at least have not been found down there. Yeah, um, I, I would. There are a number of groups of animals that have not been found in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Like there, there haven't been snakes found there. I don't yep. think crocs haven't been found there. I don't think I would be extremely hesitant to say that they weren't there. Yes, and it, it's one of those things where that's not unheard of we do th- have things like the famous uh, island of ireland you know it is lacking in snakes mm-hmm. and stuff like that but it's very unusual for especially a large landmass to just completely be lacking especially those kind of groups that are do very well most places yeah well especially since this used to be part of a supercontinent where those animals were common yeah it's 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 really one of the intriguing things about antarctica that if there were things that lived on Australia, Africa, South America, throughout the Mesozoic, throughout the Paleozoic, they were almost certainly on Antarctica as well. And the fact that we haven't found those things down there is almost definitely a factor of the fact that we've only ever been there so many times and we can only do so much. Yeah, it's really not surprising that we haven't found stuff there. Yeah. That's a thing that uh, it, it comes up, it used to come up a lot when I... When I used to teach the intro geology labs in grad mm-hmm. school, you know, because we, we, we did a, an activity that was about the movement of continents and how that affects the dis- distribution of living organisms. And, you know, Antarctica, like we said, organisms moved through Antarctica, right? In mm-hmm. order for marsupials to get to Australia, they, from the Americas, they had to go through Antarctica. And one of the questions that I used to ask the students is, why don't we have fossils of all those animals? Mm-hmm. Right now, the answer, of course, as we've been discussing, is, well, it's really hard to dig there. We don't have a good yeah. fossil record. Every time I ever asked that question, the first answer I would get is that Antarctica was too cold for them, so they couldn't stay there. Yes. Which is is a bit of a misunderstanding of the fact that, A, the Antarctic, environment has changed, right? Mm-hmm. Things were absolutely able to be there. And also a bit of a misunderstanding of how dispersal works. Yeah. I think people have this this notion in their in their head that the animals would be in South America and go, boy, we should really want to be in Australia. Yep. And then walk all the way across Antarctica to get there. Yeah. And no, they were 
expanding their range. Antarctica was a place where these animals were living. Yeah, they were living in Antarctica and eventually spread out enough to be also living in Australia. Yes, which is fortunate because eventually Antarctica became covered in ice <laughs> and anything yes. that most of what lived there was is no longer able to live. <laughs> it was just frozen. It was just like day after tomorrow. The big wind came, everyone froze. Everything froze. And it, we're going to find, you know, scenes of them eating breakfast and stuff like that <laughs> um, when we finally get down there. Yeah, it's it's uh, this mentality, uh, professors would say it in grad school all the time, that when animals disperse, they don't go, all right, everybody, go! And they don't yeah. just march across, you know, the, the marsupials were not getting, you know, in South America and going, all right, everybody got your coats, all right, and bundling up and trudging through Antarctica and then yep. taking them off in Australia and going, whew, all right, we're here I'm now. glad we made it. Across Oof, that entire continent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not like that. They were just living everywhere. You know, no animal has, you know, they don't have meetings. They just survive and yes. end up places where they can also survive. <laughs> yeah. Now, on the note of the animals crossing across continents, there's a really cool example of that in precedent, the therapsids that have been found there. So therapsids you'll often hear called the mammal-like reptiles, mm -hmm. but they were the lineage that eventually gave rise to mammals. Yeah, the ancestral cousins of mammals. Yeah, and they were they were pretty weird and cool. You had some that that showed traits that were very mammal-like, but then also some really weird un-mammal-like, and thus why the names sometimes seeming very reptilian traits. Yeah. And there's some really cool ones. Uh, Thranaxodon is one of them, which was this kind of like small... It wasn't very big, but it was... If you had to compare it to something nowadays, it'd be like a cross between a badger and a monitor lizard. Like, <laughs> it's these really weird, low-slung, very narrow, or long, you know, skulls, and, you know, we're probably just small little scurrying animals that, you know, not, not tiny, tiny like a mouse, but, mm -hmm. you know, these little running on the floor. Along with those were Lystrosaurs. Yeah. And these were similar body design of low-slung, very... Odd looking, but they had these two little tusks that came out of either side of their their kind of beak like mouths. Yeah, super cute looking, but they also got pretty big. There were some that were two and a half meters, so you know over six feet long. Mm -hmm. So there are some decent sized ones. The important thing is that for both of the ones found in Antarctica, the exact same species was also found in Africa, and they had to run a number of tests to confirm that they were looking at the same thing. But they came to the conclusion that. It was the same species on both sides, and especially with the Lystrosaurs, this was one of the, a, a very big supporting factor and one of the things that kind of helped to confirm the theory of plate tectonics. Yeah. At the time of its discovery, that was something that was being discussed and debated, and this was a big part in saying, look, same species, different continents, had to get there somehow. That That also is the case with the famous plant glossopterus. Mm -hmm. So all of these, uh, the therapsids, the glossopterus, these are things you tend to find around the beginnings of the Mesozoic, right? the mm -hmm. late Permian or in, into the Triassic. And glossopterus is also found, uh, I believe, all across Gondwana, yeah. Australia, South America, Africa, and, and has also been found in Antarctica. So there's definite connection to those other continents in terms of its fauna. Yeah, and it's they're they're cool animals to find there anyway, but it's also a very cool thing that they gave uh, such an important realization mm -hmm. 
you know, stuff like tech, plate tectonics, which nowadays we take as a as a given. Yeah. That's a, those are some of the fossils that were very cool and important. But getting to the ones that I'm sure most people are really getting excited to, we're getting into the reptiles. Yeah. Which we have some exciting ones. They have some pterosaurs. They have some mm-hmm. elasmosaurs, the, the long-necked uh, group of plesiosaurs. Mm-hmm. That, and the cool thing they mentioned on that is that because of where they found them, they think they may have been living in river systems, not the, not not the, the sea. Ocean. Yeah. That's cool. Which is cool. I like that. Just mental imagery. That's a fun one. But they do have dinosaurs. Yeah. Jurassic and Cretaceous dinosaurs. Yeah. Now, not a lot. Nope. Not not even close to a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there there are uh there are three main ones you typically hear about. Uh, there have been pieces of others found, but there are three, you know, solidly identified, each from different genera. Yeah. In the 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 Jurassic early Jurassic sediments are found in the mountains, right? This mm-hmm. uh, Mount Kirkpatrick has a formation called the Hansen Formation. Uh this is where Cryolovasaurus was found. Famous the famously the first and I think only named theropod meat-eating mm-hmm. dinosaur from Antarctica. Yes, uh, with the weird Elvis head crest. Yeah. yeah, when you when you look at it, it's got this little flip. It looks like a cowlick. Like it's yep. just this little bone clamshell looking thing that curves forward. Yeah. Now, a cool thing to note is that it was pretty big. Yeah, it was a good size. And considering its size, it was one of the largest theropods of that time. Like, this was, you know, on par with Allosaurus. And because the one they found something is most likely a subadult, it very likely could have gotten bigger. Yeah. If we ever find... So, this wasn't just a theropod in Antarctica. It was a big theropod. Yeah. And it wasn't alone. Uh, there was an early sauropod relative, Glacialosaurus, mm-hmm. which is also found in the same place. Uh, and then there were other fragments of unnamed theropods, uncertain mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. dinosaurs. So there was a dinosaur community here in this polar forest, which is really cool. These is these are polar dinosaurs. Which is very and then you know, as as we go into it, it raises some very interesting questions like we were talking before. For instance, were did any of these dinosaurs have features to help them during those months of night? Yeah. You know, did we have nocturnal dinosaurs that had special, you know, they had, there's been observation, observations on some where people think they might see that the, the ocular areas of the skull were larger and maybe even that the, uh, vision centers where the brain case would be, might be more prominent. It's nothing that's been confirmed, but there are hints and they knew that they are in the dark for a long time. So we may have been seeing that instead of just hibernating during these months that there may have been dinosaurs specially designed to use the starlight to continue living and hopefully hunting. These nighttime interactions <laughs> would be so cool. Interesting. I've also heard it suggested by some that dinosaurs in the polar regions, north and south, may have made the much use of being fluffy. Yes. That yeah, being the... feathery may have been very important for dinosaurs and pterosaurs, since who mm-hmm. were also fluffy. In the extreme latitudes to the north and south. Yeah, you need, you need a nice downy coat. Yes. If you're going to be somewhere cold is, is the whole thought process. Uh, there are also, as we said before, a bit late Cretaceous sediments. And those also have dinosaurs in them. Yeah. Out on the islands around the continent. I like the, the name of the one of the ones found here is Antarctopelta. Yes, an ankylosaur from Antarctica. 
in which I just have to say these names very much sound like awesome fossil Pokemon names. It's like we got Antarctica <laughs> Pelta, we got Cryolophosaurus, we got Gris, you know Glycillosaurus. So it's like it's this all these cold themed. I loved it. <laughs> and so this was a four meter Ankylosaur, nothing huge, but not small either. Mm-hmm. And this was actually the first dinosaur found, the first dinosaur remains found. Yes, in Antarctica, was. which is also cool. It's a bit confusing because I believe Cryolophosaurus was the first named dinosaur from Antarctica. Yeah. But it mm-hmm. wasn't actually found until it, it, it was found after Antarctic Pelton. Yeah. And it's that, that goes back to the, that issue of you know, museum collections. You can find something, but if no one studies it right away, it can go 20 years before someone goes, hey, has anyone named that yet? Yeah, well, and you get other things like uh, the the AP three expedition says right on their website that this last year's journey has come up with all bunch of stuff that's mm-hmm. waiting to be studied. So there's yeah. a lot, many years worth of research to be done coming back from each expedition. It's much quicker to find stuff than it is to research it. Yes, uh, the late Cretaceous into the Paleogene rocks of Antarctica are also there's other dinosaurs. Uh, there's also at least one mosasaur. Yes. That's been discovered. There are a bunch of, you know, the marine deposits are, are actually quite good in many cases yeah. where you've got microorganisms, ammonites, bivalves, uh, things like that. There's also lots of birds. Yeah, yeah they do have a, a, a decent finding of birds, uh, including their famous penguins. Yes. You find penguin fossils there, which is very cool. Once you get... Once you start getting into the the Cenozoic, the Paleocene-Eocene, you start to see penguins, mm-hmm. early early ancestors of of our modern penguins, who are iconic even before it was frozen. Mm-hmm. You get penguins living on warm Antarctica, which is something that just a quick aside for people. Uh, you know, many people may know now since it's penguins have become as popular as they are, but only a few penguins live where it's very cold. Oh yeah. All penguins live in the southern hemisphere, but most of them don't experience ice. No, they live in subtropical and tropical areas. Yeah, Galapagos, South Africa, places like that, where usually the waters are very cold. That's one interesting thing is that many of them live in climates, land climates that are comparable to Florida, but the water would be more like california or something very yeah. cold water so they still need that down to keep them more cold warm in the water uh, but then like ours are african black-footed penguins and they actually have bald spots to get rid of heat while they're <laughs> on land and yeah. they pant a lot the fossil record of penguins is like that as well the earliest fossil penguins from the paleocene are you know tropical from places yes. like new zealand and, and things like that you know the the famous Antarctic penguins are one specialized or maybe a few specialized groups mm-hmm. of penguins that have adapted specifically to this yes. environment. And so they're, they're the famous ones that we like to make movies about. But yes. That, that is not, does not make the trend. <laughs> uh, so yeah, lots of fossils from yeah. Paleozoic all the way to the Eocene. And, and when we say the Eocene, we're talking like, that's when whales are starting to show up elsewhere mm-hmm. in the world. And that's where, you know, by that time, not only is Antarctica on the South Pole, but all the other continents are pretty close to where they are today. We're only mm-hmm. 40 million years back 
At that so point. things would have looked very similar to what you see today. And it's it's a cool place. It's got lots of interesting fossils. We are learning more and more about it each time we go back. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of new techniques are being brought in, like satellite imaging uh, to see below the ice, you know, to yeah. map what things look like under there. Lots of coring samples, fascinating coring samples of the ice, you know, have been come out, which is you know, whole other subjects to talk about. But it's it's a very rich place for research, and unbeknownst to a lot of people, very interesting place for fossils. Yes. One of the biggest things about Antarctica, and this always comes up whenever I talk about Antarctica with anybody about fossils, Antarctica is a continent that is millions of square miles. Mm-hmm. Underneath those mile-thick ice sheets are lots of rocks that we yep. just can't get to. Yep. It's, it's about the same size Australia, which puts it at bigger than continental U.S. So it is oh, yeah. very big. It's huge. And it's very like, s- s- I don't know if we'll ever be able to investigate those rocks down there. Yeah. There's a lot hidden in Antarctica that we just don't have access to. If we ever develop some sort of technology that allows us to investigate those rocks, it's going to be a boom for research. Yes, absolutely. I don't know what it's going to be. We need giant drilling vehicles. Like in the core. Like in the core and all your other journeys to the center of the earth type stories. Yes. <laughs> we need something with a giant cone drill on the front and big tank treads. <laughs> like from Search for Atlantis. You know, we need all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah. And that's, but it really is, it's one of those where it is, I don't know, it, it, to me it's it's both amazing and frustrating of yes. we know there's got to be these amazing fossils down there, which is cool to know that, you know, that there was this yeah. whole lush history when it comes to life in Antarctica that you never, ever would guess if you just went there today. Yeah. And no, nor should you, because it's horrible <laughs> down there. It's just, it's, it's trying to kill life. Not a good place. But then... We know that a lot of that, and this is something that you have to come to terms with in paleontology in general, is you will never find everything because some of it may be on the bottom of the ocean. Some of it may be trapped in places that are hard to get to. Some of it may have been destroyed by, you know, erosion or (laughs) rocks getting melted back into magma. And most of it wasn't fossilized in the first place. Yeah. And so... This is just one more example of that, but this is one that it's like having it behind a pane of glass. Yes. You know it's there. You just can't <laughs> touch it, and it almost makes yeah. it worse. It's funny because, you you know, we're at a point – You paleontology has been around for two centuries now. Mm-hmm. You'd think that we've seen much of what's out there. Yeah. We've not. No. Even not including Antarctica, you know, new paleontological discoveries are made literally every week. Well, and it's it, uh, the easiest way to translate why that is, is for everyone out there, uh, and not including you paleo- you listeners who are paleontologists, but anyone who isn't, just count how many paleontologists you know on one hand. And there's not a lot of paleontologists compared to the rest of the population. So if they're the only ones typically going out and digging, and then the, you know, the other people who are either you know, avid followers of the science or helping mm-hmm. on the digs or going into paleontology from their own hobbies and interests. That's still just, that's only a small amount of people that are doing all the fossil digging. 
Yeah. And all the fossil research. And most of it's found by accident because we can't just go, want to dig here today? All right, let's dig here today. Let's dig in your backyard tomorrow. Because mm-hmm. that's that's just, you can't just play randomly because there's too much time. Yeah. And the earth is huge. It's huge. It's kind of like, big. It's a, there's a lot of digging to do. There's a there. lot of it. There's a lot of earth. It's kind of everywhere. And there are fossils everywhere. pretty much anywhere. I, you pick a rock formation, there is a very good chance that there are fossils within it. Yeah. It's impossible to predict where they're just going to pop up unless you already have known that they have been popping up there. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, well, you can make some prediction, but it's, yeah, it's, you it's can definitely, you never know for sure until you've actually started finding fossils. Yeah. There's a, there's a ton more work to be done. And expanded by what we were saying earlier on the fact of you can find a lot, but then the time it takes to research it. Yeah, yes. There are groups of animals that we have a pretty lush fossil record on, but don't know much about because they aren't getting the same attention as others. Yeah. You know, or there may just be two scientists <laughs> studying yeah, there's that only group. a few people researching them. Or, you know, there are cases where, you know, a, a paleon, you might discover something. Oh, that's really cool. But we all already have projects we're working on, so yeah. we'll get to that afterwards. Mm-hmm. So Antarctica, you know. Best of luck to the paleontologists that are actually going out there on a regular mm-hmm. basis. I'm excited to see more of what AP3 continues to produce yes. following their latest expedition. Yes. I'm going to see more news articles in, in four years or so. Yeah. It's a cool continent. It, it really is. It's very uh, interesting. And uh, as as always, and it's it's almost necessary we say it every time, we could go on and on with the amount of stuff there is potentially to talk about. But yeah. at this point, we're going to wrap things up. Yeah. If you want to hear more about anything that we, we touched on today, as usual, let us know. You tell us what we didn't talk about enough. You can contact us, as so many of you already do, and we love it every time, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, leave us reviews on iTunes. Email us at the Common Descent Podcast, mm-hmm. well, at Common Descent Podcast at gmail.com. We are also now on Patreon. We post all the regular stuff on Patreon. We also post some special stuff for patrons who are on there. We are also on Stitcher. I don't know if you can leave comments or stuff on Stitcher, but if you can, go ahead and do it there. Leave us comments, questions, requests, suggestions. Once again, big thanks to Andrew for making this suggestion. Yeah, that's uh, a good one. We, we learned a lot <laughs> researching mm-hmm. for this episode. I didn't know mm-hmm. a whole lot about Antarctic paleontology. That's, that's probably one of the most fun things about... Uh, your your suggestions that uh, you listeners give us because a lot of times it's not one we would have thought of because we get we get to have a lot to learn about it, which is part of the reason we did this podcast is because we knew we'd get to learn a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. So thanks very much for listening to the Common Descent podcast. We will return in a fortnight with the next episode. Mm-hmm. Until then, thanks for joining us. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. For more from us, you can follow us on the Common Descent Podcast Twitter account, Facebook page, or on our WordPress blog, where we post additional cool stuff for each episode. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome. You can find this and other video game remix music at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope to see you next time.